If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up to the book of Zechariah. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Zechariah. Zechariah is mentioned in other books of the Bible. Do you know which books? What's that? In the New Testament book of Luke, that's the father of John the Baptist, probably a direct descendant of Zechariah. Because that's the way names tended to run, was in families. But, to give you the idea when Zechariah prophesies, turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra takes place as Cyrus, king of Persia, who's just overthrown Babylon, tells the children of Israel they can go back and rebuild the temple. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, here's the guy, the son of Edo, prophesied, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So as the children of Israel begin to leave the Babylonian captivity and go back to the land to rebuild the temple at the permission of Cyrus, who's just overthrown Babylon in Daniel chapter 5, Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying to them. Zechariah is the younger of the two. That's why Haggai's mentioned first. But their prophecies are going on at the same time, so they're interwoven. So we will often have to look at Haggai to see what else is going on at the same time. Look also in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. That's our Zechariah here. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Yes, ma'am. What, what was the verse, the chapter and verse on the first reference? Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Thank you. Yep. And then Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. And then Nehemiah. In, with, in the book of Ezra, they were only allowed to rebuild the temple. It's in the book of Nehemiah that they're allowed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. Jeshua is the high priest. Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malach, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Meramoth, Edo. That's the one you got to know. That's the one from which Zechariah descends. So he is, we learn from this, of the family, the priests and Levites. Zechariah chapter 12. That was verses 1 through 4 to find Edo. Zechariah 12, verse 1. 
Nehemiah, thank you. Chapter 12. And let's look also in the same chapter, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 16. As it's continuing to list the priests and Levites who come back, it says in verse 16, of Edo, meaning the descendants of Edo, Zechariah. So Zechariah is also among the priests and Levites. So, not only is he a prophet, but he's among the priests and Levites. The Talmud, which is Jewish commentary, not Bible, but Jewish commentary, tells us that he was a member of the great Sanhedrin. That is the leadership of Israel when it came out of the Babylonian captivity. There were 70 men called the great Sanhedrin that included Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra, etc. So he was a very important member of the leadership of the nation of Israel as they're coming out of the Babylonian captivity. Zechariah is. Sorry. I must get more specific. I want to read you a commentary from my Tanakh. So written by the Jewish sages of old. It says, Zechariah's prophecies deal with the entire period from his own day until the, quote, end of days. What do you and I call the end of days? The day of the Lord, the time of the Messianic kingdom. So Zechariah encourages them to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to restore the worship of God, and takes them all the way to the time of the new heavens and the new earth. It says the commentaries agree that Zechariah's prophetic visions are so esoteric, which means hard to understand, that many will not be fully understood until the coming of Elijah the prophet. Referring to the one who is the forerunner of the Messiah, mentioned in the book of Malachi. Let me add a few commentaries to this. It says, interpreters have long recognized the role of Zechariah 14 in Mark's account of Yeshua's entry into Jerusalem in Mark 11. Yeshua begins on the Mount of Olives, according to Mark 11.1, 1, which is where God stands in Zechariah 14.4. Who is that God who stands in Zechariah 14.4? It's our Messiah Yeshua having returned, yeah. It says, entering Jerusalem in a way that reflects Zechariah 9.9, that is, coming and riding on a donkey, the colt of a donkey. Yeshua is hailed as king, as it says in Mark 11, verses 9 to 10, echoing Zechariah 14.9. Yeshua comes finally to the temple in Mark 11.15, as all people do in Zechariah 14, verses 20 to 21. In the temple, Yeshua drives out those engaged in trade. That's Mark 11, verses 15 to 16, interpreting Zechariah 14, 2, as does the Targum to Zechariah. Do you guys know what a Targum is? Targum is an Aramaic paraphrase of Hebrew scriptures. For people that are not as highly trained in Hebrew, it takes it and puts it in more common language, kind of like the Bibles today that are not exactly <coughs> translations but are easy to read, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but easy to read nonetheless. 
According to the commentary, Zechariah is the most popularly quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. That knocked my socks off. I would have thought it was Isaiah. I can see how you might think that. We should have a contest. We should have a contest. But let me give you some facts. The New Testament, excuse me, the New Testament quotes Zechariah 71 times. Of course, I got to tell you, they're not all quotes. Sometimes they're allusions to. 31 of these are in Revelation. 31 times Revelation refers back to Zechariah. 27 are in the Gospels. Because they talk about Messiah's entry into Jerusalem, etc. It says the second half of Zechariah is the source of the more familiar passages cited in the New Testament. For example, Yeshua's triumphant entry into Jerusalem on a donkey shows that he's the king whom the prophet foretold. For betraying the Lord, the chief priest paid Judas how much? 30, 30. 30 pieces of silver. That's from Zechariah. Which he subsequently cast into the temple. That's in Zechariah. Matthew interpreted this to be a fulfillment of the Old Testament, which mentions Jeremiah, but it's actually a quote from Zechariah. Did the Lord not know the difference? Probably. Yeah, he does. But Jeremiah is sometimes just a reference to the Old Testament prophets. The Bible in the Hebrew text is divided into three parts. The law, the prophets, and the writings. So sometimes the prophets are referred to as Jeremiah, sometimes as Isaiah, just as a reference. Well, you know where it is in the book. Zechariah 13.7 says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This was fulfilled when the disciples abandoned Yeshua during the trial and crucifixion. It says a double fulfillment is recorded for Zechariah 12.10, which predicts mourning for a pierced one by those who pierced him. What does Zechariah 12.10 say? And they shall look upon me whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns as an only son. That's from Zechariah. And second, when Yeshua returns at the end of time. The next comment is from Walter Kaiser. I don't know that you guys care where these come from. It says of all the Old Testament books, Zechariah is second only to Ezekiel in his influence on the book of Revelation. I would have thought Daniel would have been the most important one. Charles Swindoll, we all know him, says Zechariah is second only to Isaiah in its number of messianic passages. You know how much shorter Zechariah is than Isaiah. Isaiah 66 chapters. Zechariah 14. Wow. Among Zechariah's explicit references to Messiah are the angel of the Lord. Oh my goodness. I've got a, I wrote down here somewhere how many times they use that word, that phrase. Oh, let's see. Actually, I didn't. I wrote down the Lord of hosts occurs 50 times. 50 times in 14 chapters. Who's the Lord of hosts? That's our Messiah when he returns, right? Leading the armies of heaven. And thus saith the Lord occurs at least 62 times. Wow. So among Zechariah's explicit references to Messiah are the angel of the Lord, the righteous branch, the king priest, the cornerstone, the tent peg, and the bow of battle. 
the good shepherd who is sold for 30 pieces of silver, the pierced one, and the coming judge and righteous king. All this is from Zechariah. The Schofield Reference Bible says, No Old Testament prophet has more prophecy concerning Messiah, Israel, and the nations in so short a book. Zechariah predicts the second coming, the reign of Messiah, his priesthood, his kingship, his humanity, his deity, his building of the temple of the Lord, his coming in lowliness, his bringing of permanent peace, his rejection and betrayal, his return to Israel as the crucified one, and his being smitten by the sword of the Lord. All that's in Zechariah. One more set of commentaries here. One of the great ironies concerning the book of Zechariah is its relative obscurity to the modern church, contrasted with its profound significance to the early church. Unfortunately, students of the Bible rarely study Zechariah today. After this series, you guys won't be amongst those, will you? Nope. However, strong reasons exist for suggesting that the book ascended to a place of paramount importance to the writers of the New Testament to the early church at large. Quote, the book of Zechariah exerted a profound influence over the New Testament, particularly in the realm of messianic passages, a point long noted by New Testament scholars. And then it goes to go over those same themes again. Okay, so ready to start your notes? There are four purposes to the book of Zechariah. Four purposes. First is to encourage Israel to rebuild the temple. Second, to announce God's prophetic plan. Okay. Thank you for letting me know slow down. Number one, encourage Israel to rebuild the temple. Remember, Cyrus said you can go back and rebuild. They started to go back. They ran into trouble. They said, yeah, it's not going to be worth the effort. And Zachariah's on her case going, oh, yes, it is. Why is that important today? Same issue. Same issue. In fact, when we start Zachariah, you're going to notice the timing is really interesting. Number two. To announce God's prophetic plan for the Gentiles. The grafting into the Gentiles. Yeah, that's part of Zechariah. Will the Gentiles keep the feasts and festivals in the kingdom? Yes, yes they will. Will they keep the commandments of God? Yes, they will. Is Zechariah the only prophet to tell us that? No, he's not. He's just one of many. Number three, to predict the Messianic kingdom's blessings for Israel. Will they learn war in the Messianic kingdom? No. Will the animals attack people in the Messianic kingdom? No. It's going to be a time of peace, love, and harmony like this world has not seen. The fourth purpose is to outline the events that lead up to the Messianic Kingdom. What can we see that's going to tell us that that day is approaching? All of it? Okay. There are four purposes to the book of Zechariah. 
Number one is to encourage Israel to rebuild the temple. Why did they have to rebuild the temple? What happened to it? Babylon destroyed it. No, Babylon destroyed it. Yeah. Rome destroys it again in 70. Yeah. Number two, to announce God's prophetic plan for the Gentiles. Is God's plan only for Israel? No, it's for the whole world. Number three, to predict the Messianic kingdom's blessings for Israel. And that includes the Gentiles that have been grafted in. You'll understand that by the time we get there. And number four, to outline events leading up to the Messianic kingdom. What kind of things should we be looking forward to? There are four specific texts from Zechariah that are specifically about Yeshua's ministry in the New Testament. They are first, Zechariah 9.9. Riding on a donkey. If a king came riding on a horse, that's a sign of war. If he comes riding on a donkey, that's a sign of peace. How did Messiah ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? When he returns to Revelation 19, he's riding a horse. So he's coming back for war. He came first time in peace. He's coming back for war. The second one is Zechariah 11.13. Which specifically talks about 30 pieces of silver and what's going to happen to those 30 pieces of silver. The third one is Zechariah 12.10. They'll look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. That can only happen if Israel has what? Repented and gotten saved. So it's the salvation of Israel. And the fourth text that's specifically about Messiah and his ministry is Zechariah 13, 7, where the shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. Talking about Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection, and what happens to the disciples. So, normally when we introduce a book, we say, what does the name mean? Means what? The Lord remembers. Takes place at the end of the Babylonian captivity as the Jews are coming back to Israel to rebuild first the temple and then the city walls. We saw the four purposes. We know the time. So let's jump into it with both feet. Turn with me please to Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1. It says, in the eighth month. What is the eighth month? What's that? Cheshvan is the month after the fall festivals. So the fall festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, which teaches the rapture and resurrection. The Day of Atonement, which teaches Messiah's return and setting his feet on the Mount of Olives for the Battle of Armageddon. 
and the Feast of Tabernacles, which teaches the established Messianic Kingdom, they are all complete. They all revolve around the temple, and there isn't one. So, God gives a prophecy to Zechariah to say, essentially, how do I put it politely? Get off your duffs and get to work. Okay? So in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying. Zechariah means what? The Lord remembers. Berechiah means the Lord blesses. So the Lord remembers his promises of blessing Israel. But what must they do to be blessed? They must repent, right? They must repent and follow his way. Well, Daniel prayed a prayer of repentance. Then Cyrus allows the people to go back to rebuild. But the people get discouraged and say, well, never mind. But if they want the blessings of the Lord, they need to get busy. And Edo means his time referring to the appointed time, that it is time to rebuild. We said that every time we read about Zechariah in Ezra and Nehemiah, he was with which other prophet? Haggai. Haggai in Hebrew is Haggai, which means my festivals. And Haggai talks about the rebuilding of the temple in terms of God's festivals, his appointed times. God's appointed times are not just there for some nice, light reading. They're there to show God's plan and when things are to be accomplished. This prophecy, when it says in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, keep your finger there and go back to Ezra chapter 4 verse 24. Ezra 4, verse 24. Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. It says, Thus the work of the house of God, that is the reconstruction of the temple, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You see that? Now go back to Zechariah 1.1. It's what? It's the second year of Darius. So what Ezra is trying to say is, the people gave up on it. They threw their hands up. They quit. So God sent Zechariah to say, it's time to get busy again. What does the Lord tell us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10? What are we supposed to do when we see the day of the Lord approaching? Yep. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. 
let us hold fast, um, sorry, 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. If you love God, what do you do? Keep his commandments. So that's what love and good works refers to. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That phrase is episunagoge, don't depart from the synagogue. It says, as is the manner of some, some of the believers, by the time that Paul writes the book of Hebrews, have said, we're Gentiles, we don't like Jews, we're going to go off and start something else, we're going to go do a Sunday service. And Paul says, don't do that. Stay in the synagogues. Keep preaching the gospel to the children of Israel because Messiah doesn't return until they say what? Baruch HaBab Hashem and I. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So continue to keep God's commandments to encourage others to the more you see the day approaching. How do you take that and say, well, that means the commandments quit. They were done away. No, you can't, can you? So back to Zechariah 1.1. This takes place two months after Haggai's ministry begins. So Haggai begins, and the people are not responding, so God sends Zechariah to pile on. Zechariah's first message, this timing here, tells us that it's between Haggai's second and third messages. So two months after Haggai begins, Haggai's given two of his messages, and then the third one comes after. So Zechariah begins prophesying in late October or early November of 520 BCE. And he prophesies for three years. And to add to this, let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Notice Matthew's not very many pages later. Why did Zechariah stop prophesying? It says in verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So he met the fate of most of the prophets that God sent to Israel. They killed him. What verse was that? Matthew 23, verse 35. Any questions before we hit verse 2? Okay, verse 2. The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Does that mean Berechiah and Edo? No. It means the forefathers who lived at the time that the temple was destroyed. We're reading about that now in the book of Jeremiah, right? What had they done? They went into the temple of God. They cut crashes in the walls and set up pagan idols. They set up pagan altars to the sun, moon, and other gods in the courtyards of God's temple. And how did this make God feel? It says he was very angry. Very angry indeed. Verse 3, therefore. What's therefore mean? 
because God was so angry with your forefathers and the idolatry and immorality in which they lived, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts. First time we see the phrase the Lord of hosts, but it sure won't be the last. That word Lord, notice, is the tetragrammaton, the same way Lord is always in the Old Testament when it says capital L and small caps O-R-D. The Lord of hosts, the word host means armies. So the Lord who leads the armies of heaven. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? It means repent. It means God is not going to restore the blessings to Israel until they repent. Daniel prayed a prayer of repentance. The people were allowed to come back to the land and now they're turning away from God. And God says, uh-uh. That's not why I brought you back to the land. You return to me, that is you repent and come back to me and obey me. And then I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. How many times do you see the phrase the Lord of hosts in the one verse? Three times. Whenever you see the Lord of hosts, you know it's not just an ancient prophecy, but it's also a prophecy of the future, prophecy of the day of the Lord. Is God going to regather Israel fully back in the land and, and establish Messiah as King of kings and Lord of lords and let the messianic kingdom reign on earth? Yes, but not until Israel returns. They must return to God before God will return to them. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is not a new concept. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verses 1 through 6. The false prophets in Jeremiah... We're giving the same message that the false teachers give to the world today. That is, that you can be saved and have God's blessing without repentance. You can continue in your sins and God will love you anyway. That's an ancient teaching by the false prophets. By now I see the pages have stopped. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 through 6. Now, it's not now, so just cross it out, it's and. Now implies a time, right? And does not. And it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, that is, all of the diasporas, all the captivities, of which God said there would be three. The Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C.E. The Babylonian captivity, the southern kingdom of Judah, which began around 606 to 605. And then the Roman diaspora of 70 AD. Those three have to all take place before chapter 30 of Deuteronomy is fulfilled. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. And you return to the Lord your God. See that word return? Means to repent and come back to. 
and obey his voice, which means what? To keep his commandments. According to all that I command you today, which means the commandments have not changed from that time till today. You and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. No more mouthing we will be obedient, but to demonstrate it with your heart and your soul. That's entering into the new covenant. That's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your neighbor and yourselves. Verse 3 says that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. The regathering back to Israel has begun, but it's not complete yet. It's not complete until this prophecy is fulfilled. And have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, picture in your mind a globe. Can you see Jerusalem? Now draw a line through the earth. Where did he come out on the other side? Probably Georgia. <laughs> this is about as far from Jerusalem as you can be strewn. Okay. From there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. If you remember the United Nations offered Israel a homeland before they, they offered them the land of Israel. They offered them a land in Africa. And they said, no. God said, to the land which your fathers possessed. And you shall possess it. Hmm, do you see anything there that looks like maybe or might? No. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That's the new covenant. Circumcision of the heart means you now have a desire to follow God, to be obedient to him, to claim him as your God, to be his obedient children. And the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. So according to Deuteronomy 30, what would it require, what would it take for this to ultimately be fulfilled? Israel has to repent and has to return to God. Is that not what God says in Zechariah? You return to me and I'll return to you. All the blessings that Israel has lost through the years because of disobedience will not just be restored but will be multiplied according to the scripture. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. But you know I got to read verse 7, right? Just for context. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Did God do that? God did that. But if you return to me, there's that word return again, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So Nehemiah is telling God, we have repented, we have returned to you with our whole hearts. But had they? No. He wanted them to be that way. But we find they're not yet ready. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 41, 44. Let's go to 44. Isaiah 44. Verse 22. In Isaiah 44, God wants to bring the children of Israel home. In fact, if you notice in chapter 45, it references Cyrus, who's going to allow the children of Israel to go back and build the temple. But God's calling out through the prophet, verse 22, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So God's heart and desire is that when Cyrus allows them to come back, they come back to God, they return to him with their whole hearts. That was God's hope anyway. Go to Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 1. Why Wayne? Because God has called out through the millennia. Return to me. Jeremiah chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. If you will return, O Israel. See that word return again? If you'll return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. That sounds redundant, but it's not. It means if you desire to return to me, then do it. Return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, talking about the idolatry and the immorality, then you shall not be moved. So if you want to return and come back to God, then do it. Do it with your whole heart. Mean it. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. First time I went to Israel was in 1992. And there wasn't a Messianic congregation anywhere around. You didn't see Messianic Jews with the blue and the tzitzit anywhere around Jerusalem. You go over there now and there's Messianic congregations everywhere. And you see Messianic Jews all over the city of Jerusalem. But is it the whole nation yet? No, God wants the whole nation to return. It's individuals so far, and the faith is spreading. People are coming back to God. But they're not all the way there yet. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. After promising to return them back to the land, he says, Then I will give them a heart to know me. 
What's it mean to know the Lord? John chapter 17, verse 3. It means eternal life. That I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. There's that word return again. They're going to return how? In lip service? No. With their whole heart. That's talking about returning them to the Messianic kingdom. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is about all that stands between Zechariah and Matthew, right? Malachi 3 7. In fact, I'm going to start at 6 because it's a very important verse. Very important. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Doesn't that make your jaw drop? They're saying, what, did we do something wrong? Wow. James chapter 4 in the New Testament. James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verse 8. This is still God's plea. Only here, he's pleading with the church. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is saying not everybody who claims the name of the Lord is actually saved. What did the Lord say in Luke chapter 6, verse 46? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Yeah. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 1. I think verse 3 establishes one fact beyond a shadow of a doubt. Is God wants everybody to repent and to turn to him in faith and be saved. That's 2 Peter chapter 3. God wants everyone to be saved, but will everyone be saved? No, why? The next word verse says, but. Yes, he tells us that it's because they love their sin too much. They don't want to give up their sin, but they want God's blessing. They want to be saved and yet live in sin and do what they want to do. And does that work? It does not. Verse 4 says, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. What's he talking about? 
Did God send prophet after prophet preaching repentance? And what do people say? No. You just bless us anyway. Isn't God just another name for Santa Claus gives us whatever we ask for? No. Go to Jeremiah chapter 35. Jeremiah chapter 35 verse 15. This tells us something about the role of a prophet. It's not to prophesy how the coffee crop will be next year. Or who's going to be president in 2024. Jeremiah 35, 15. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them saying. The word saying means it's a quote. Turn now. The word now here is not. It's, you can translate it as now or please. Turn now please everyone from his evil way. Amend your doings. And do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. That word turn now. Turn is shuvu. It means to return, to repent, to come back to God. Says, but you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. So, what does every true prophet of God preach? Repentance. Why did they keep putting the prophets of God to death? Because what message did they not want to hear? Repent. When it says in verse 15, do not go after other gods to serve them. Sometimes we misunderstand that and think serving another god means just to go bow down and light candles and burn incense before them. But it's much more than that. Go to uh, Romans chapter 6 verse 16. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. While you're turning there, I want you to think back to the Garden of Eden. God said, do not eat from the tree. The serpent said, eat from the tree. And to whom did they listen? To the serpent. They obeyed the serpent rather than God. Look at Romans 6.16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves servants to obey, you are that one's servants whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So if God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and anybody else says, no, forget Shabbat, let's do Sunday instead, if you listen to and obey the one who says no, set aside Shabbat and do Sunday instead, what have you made them? You have made them your God. You have made them an idol of your affections. And we could go on, but that's enough. Go back to Zechariah chapter 1. Verse 4, when it says, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached. What does he mean? Did the fathers listen to and respond to the prophets and repent? 
No, what did they do? The more the prophets said repent, the more they hardened their hearts. The more they said, no, you can't make me. And people today say, oh, that, that wouldn't happen today. Look at Revelation chapter 16. Yeah, what does a reprobate mind mean? You're past the point of no return. So you can tell God no so many times that you will never say yes. In Revelation chapter 16, we're past the seven seals. We're past the seven trumpets. We're into the seven vials or bowls of the great wrath of God. Look at verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. When it says they blaspheme the name of God, it means they know from whom the judgments fall. Does that cause them to fall on their knees and repent? No. They did not repent. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Do you see why eventually the battle of Armageddon comes, and those that are not saved perish? If God gave them more time, would they repent and come? No. They have made their decision. And they will not change their mind. Back to Zechariah chapter 1. Verse 5. Verse 4 ends with, But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord your fathers. Where are they? Dead. Dead. Gone. Did they get returned to the land? Did they get God's blessing? Did they get his promise of eternal life? No. Why? Because they refused to return. And the prophets, do they live forever? That's actually the response of the people back to God. Yeah, our fathers are dead, but so are your prophets. Verse 6. Yet surely my words and my statutes. When God says my words, remember that we call the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments, but God calls them the Ten Words. So when God says my words, he's talking about my commandments and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? What's he mean by that? Did they not come to pass? Did I not do exactly what I said I would do? Did they not go into captivity? Did they not suffer God's wrath and judgment? In other words, the fathers died at God's command. 
So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Meaning now they have to admit, yeah, yeah, they suffered because you commanded that they suffer because of their disobedience. Hmm. Let's turn to Matthew 24, 35. What color are the words? Red. Some people can't answer that because they're still turning. But they'll get there. Matthew chapter 24, 35. These are Messiah's own words. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will what? Will by no means pass away. Is Yeshua God from all eternity? Does John 1, 1 say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God? In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. Huh. Look also at Luke chapter 16. God's word does not change. God's word does not fail. Luke 16, verse 17. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. A tittle is not a letter, it's a piece of a letter. Remember what Messiah said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, till heaven and earth pass away, not a single letter or a single piece of a letter will pass from the Torah until all prophecy gets fulfilled. Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. So the words that God gave to his servants the prophets are still being fulfilled. Even into the Midpoint of the book of Revelation, everything God prophesied is coming to pass. Nothing has failed, nor has it all been accomplished. You realize there's whole Christian denominations out there that say all of God's prophecies were finished by 70 AD, all of them. There's nothing left to be fulfilled. Boy, are they going to be surprised one of these days, huh? Let's look also at Revelation chapter 11, verse 18.
Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The wrath that God promised all the way back in the Old Testament prophets has come finally. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. That you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints. Oh my. In Revelation 12, 17 and Revelation 14, 12, it tells us about the saints. They're the ones who what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. It says, And those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So even as Revelation is being fulfilled, God's word has never failed. Never has, never will. Go back to Zechariah chapter 1. And by the way, that means even if you wish they would fail, they're not going to. Zechariah chapter 1, we're up to verse 7. This is what? Weird. Weird? What is? Just starting with this chapter. Ah, okay. Open it up. Verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month. Now what's the 11th month? That's what? It says it right there. It's actually Shavat, yeah. They don't know the difference in the tra- from the translators between the B sound and the V sound. But the month is Shavat. After that is the month of Adar. And then we hit the spring festival. So it's right before the spring appointed times. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shavat, in the second year of Darius. So we're still in that second year of Darius. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo the prophet. What's the significance to the 24th of Shavat? It's three months later from verse 1. Three months have passed. So for three months he's been calling on Israel to return to God. Have they done it? Nope, so here comes another round. It's also two years before the completion of the second temple. Which was on the third of Adar. Verse 8. Love this part. I saw by night... What, does that mean he has really good eyesight? No, it's a prophetic vision. And behold, which means shut up and listen. This is really important. Don't you miss this. A man riding on a red horse. What does a red horse indicate? War. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. What does myrtle represent? Represents believers, faith in Messiah. What's that? Does it represent uh, eyes? Eyes? I don't know. Never heard that. Where they have myrtle and you know those different things. They talk about the eyes with the myrtle somewhere in scripture. Okay. And behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Okay, behind him were three horses. The first one's red, which means what? War. 
The third one is white, which means peace. But what's a sorrel horse? It's red and white spotted, yeah. It's spotted red and white. Represents Tolstoy, war and peace. <laughs> well, maybe that was the name of the horse. I don't know. So what in the world? Israel is in shatters. These horses are looking at the rest of the world. Is the rest of the world going to be in peace while Israel is judged by God, or are they going to come under God's judgment too? Right now, all we know is the horses are about to examine the rest of the world. We're going to find out that the man on the red horse at the beginning of verse 8, that's our Messiah Yeshua. We're going to learn that in verse 11, but I'll just throw that out right now. So Messiah is looking over the rest of the world. If Israel deserved God's judgment, what does the rest of the world deserve? Is the rest of the world serving God with their whole heart? They are not. So does this mean they're about to get it? A yipper. Verse 9 says, Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I'll show you what they are. That brings us to verse 10. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. Will there be war? Will there be peace? They will bring war or peace to the other nations depending upon how the Lord commands. But they're all at the ready. Verse 11. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. So while Jerusalem and the land of Israel is in tatters and ruins, the rest of the world is what? At peace, resting quietly, not receiving any judgment from the Lord. Boy, is that going to change? You know it is. Verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord. See how angel is capitalized? The angel of the Lord is often a reference to Messiah. The word angel doesn't mean a created heavenly being. It's the word for messenger. Somebody who delivers the word of God to the people. So he answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, that's verse 11, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts. When you see that phrase, is peace coming? No, war is coming. How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem 
and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years. What 70 years? 70 years they failed to keep the Sabbath year. Let's start in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> Jeremiah 25, verses 1 through 12. Oops, I have three chats out there. Let me go look. Oops, sorry. Susie asks, in Matthew 24, 25, when Messiah says, my words, can we feel he's referring to Torah? That's correct. Okay. Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. How are the children of Israel and Judah serving the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim? Not at all. They've turned away completely. It's like it was in the days of Ahab up in the north with Baal worship, etc. First, it was. Yes, ma'am. If the word of the Lord here, would that be Yeshua? Yep. Yep. Is he not the word of the Lord? Yep. Yep. Verse 2, was Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, meaning these are the exact words, from the 13th year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, which is the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. How many years has Jeremiah been prophesying repentance? 23 years. And have the people listened? No. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now, every one of his evil way and his evil doings. Who's the they? All his servants, the prophets, every one of them. And dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. So that word repent is a command. It's shuvu. It's a command to everyone to repent. And the promise is that if you do, you'll remain in the land. Verse 6. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. And I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, what's coming? Judgment. Because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them, make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. 
and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. How long did the Babylon captivity last? 70. How did God know, huh? Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. What happened in Daniel chapter 5 when 70 years were completed? Medo-Persia overthrew Babylon. Says the Lord, I will make it a perpetual desolation. Anybody seen the land of Iraq today? It's pretty desolate, isn't it? Let's go down to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Verses 1 through 11. Question. Go ahead. After the return from the 70 years, I yep. thought, did Israel ever keep the Shemitah or do they today? The answer that's going to be no in both cases. And we've never kept it either, right? It's only for the land. Only for Israel? Shemitah is only the land of Israel. So not for the land of the whole earth. Right. Yep. Well, it might not be a bad idea. Might not be a bad idea, yeah. You know, farmers do leave land fallow, and seven years is a common way to do it. They just don't do it all in one year. Right, and they're smart to do it. It's better for the land. How did God know it would be better for the land, huh? Yeah. Take an ag engineering. And if you file bankruptcy, you're bankrupt for how long? For seven years. So there's a lot of these biblical principles that we have brought into our modern society. But chapter 29 of Jeremiah, verses 1 to 11. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, now take a deep breath, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Oh, that sounds like they're going to be there a while, doesn't it? Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. So that they may bear sons and daughters. That you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, 
and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God says, I didn't send you into Babylon to destroy you. So build houses, plant gardens, have children, increase in number, don't decrease, because after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. At the end of 70 years, when God said you can go back, do you realize that most of Israel said, no, we're not going back? We're going to stay here in the land of Babylon. We've got businesses. We've got homes. And we don't care that we're worshiping pagan gods. We don't care enough to return to you. Wait, is that one reason why so many Iraqi are coming to the Lord now? Uh, it probably is, yeah. Because they're Jews. Yeah. yeah. And just have forgotten. Yeah. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 36. So Jeremiah told them twice that they would be in captivity for 70 years. Second Chronicles reiterates that 70 years. Second Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 15. Second Chronicles 36 is the book that tells us why 70 years. Why not 75? Why not 60? Second Chronicles chapter 36 starting in verse 15. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent warnings to them by his messengers. That's the prophets. Rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had now compassion on young men or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdoms of Persia, that's Daniel chapter 5. When God wrote on the wall, Mine, mine, tekel, you farsen. Which paraphrasing meant, that's it, you're toast. And the kingdom fell that night. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Once they came back in the land, if they had kept the Sabbath years, the Shemitahs, then we would know exactly when the Lord was coming for us. But they didn't. Oh, well. Yes, Sam? So how does that How does it relate to us? Because uh, our country, by and large, does not keep Sabbath. 
It means that we are going to be destroyed here in the not too far distant future. Where in end times prophecy is the United States of America? It's not. Why? Because we have failed to follow God. Does Isaiah 56 say the Gentile nations who keep the Sabbath and hold fast my covenant will enter into the kingdom? Yeah, and America didn't. Yeah. Go to the book of Daniel. Daniel realizes that it's time for the captivity to come to an end. Why? Go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel was among the first group of the captives that went into Babylon because he's royalty. Daniel chapter 9 verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, so he's also called Artaxerxes, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. So Daniel says, it's been 70 years. It's time for us to repent and return to God. So on behalf of the nation, he prays a prayer of repentance. And the king lets him go home. Wayne? Yes, sir. Um, I've been uh, thinking a lot over time about the different way that the... Uh, first lot of people that went back with Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, how it was not the same as the way it developed with the people who remained behind and came back at the time of the Maccabees. And it just had not occurred to me until you said right at the beginning um, about Daniel himself. Uh, I think you were saying that Daniel came back with that lot. Did was that what you meant? I'd always understood he'd stayed there. there. There's two schools of thought. Some of the commentators say he returned to Israel, and some say he did not. Since I wasn't oh. there, I don't know which group is right. I do know he was part of the great Sanhedrin that ruled Israel after the return. So did he do that from the land of Babylon or back in the well, land of Israel? Possible, yeah, I guess it's possible. Remember, there's two Talmuds. There's the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. And the Babylonian Talmud is the one that's greater in respect. Because most of the Jewish sages didn't go back to the land. So whether Daniel did uh, return or not, oh, I can't not say off, for then. sure. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily way off for thinking, uh, having assumed up to now that he was in Babylon until he died. Right. There's a grave in Babylon that people say is Daniel's. If you go to my family graveyard in Suchus, 
you will find gravestones for each of my grandfathers back until before the Civil War. And the people will tell you, but that's not necessarily where they're buried. They just put a marker there with the dates and all that. Well, he's here somewhere. So the fact that there's a grave that they say is Daniel's doesn't necessarily mean that it is. But because of that, some people say, well, he must have died in Babylon. Since there's two schools of thought and I wasn't there, I really can't give a definitive answer. Except that when we get to heaven, we can ask him. He will be there, I'm sure. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 1. We're up to verse 13. And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. The words are in verses 14 to 17, so we're going to get to read them. We don't have to guess what they are. So the angel spoke with me, said to me, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, Zion with great zeal. That word zealous is the word kana, spell it Q-A-N-A, Hebrew word 7065. And it's translated both as zealous and as jealous. And this case, I would say, you can probably put either definition to it. Because it means the nations that have abused Israel are going to get it. God is going to be zealous in delivering judgment to them because he's jealous of Israel and how they've mistreated him. People go, well, wait a minute. God commanded Babylon to take Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. Yes, he did. Did he intend them to mistreat them the way that they did? The answer is no. And that's what he's about to say. But to take a further look at this word, kana, is translated in Numbers 25.11 differently than it is in Deuteronomy 32. So let's look at Numbers first. Numbers 25.11. You remember Numbers chapter 25 is about Baal Peor, right? And how Balaam taught... Balak to get God to curse the children of Israel. It says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with Israel. He was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. In all three cases there, they translate kana as zealous or zeal. And then if you look at Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 32, first verse 16. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. That word jealousy, jealously, 
is the same word. Jealousy is the same word. So God responds in zeal whenever he's been challenged and made jealous. You see that same word in chapter 32, verse 21. For they provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They moved me to anger by their foolish idols. So when you move God to jealousy, he's going to react zealously in vengeance. So we understand the word now. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 1, up to verse 15. Let's see why Babylon's about to get it, and the Medo-Persia's about to get it, and then Greece is about to get it. He says, I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. Remember the horses went through and said, oh, the other nations, they're at ease. For I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. So God wanted to show the children of Israel that they should worship him and not the pagan gods. And Babylon took them into captivity, but then how did they treat them? They treated them poorly. Did God intend the children of Israel to be treated so poorly? The answer is no. So while Babylon, yes, was used by God, Babylon took it much further than God intended it because of their evil intent. What does evil intent mean? They did not have the people's best interest at mind and at heart. They were not trying to bring them to repentance. They were trying to destroy them. And what does God call Israel? The apple of my eye. When you mistreat Israel, God doesn't like it. Gee, that sounds a lot like Genesis 12, doesn't it? Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Babylon decided to curse Israel, and they fall under the wrath of God. Verse 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Verse 16 means Jerusalem will be rebuilt, the temple will be rebuilt, and there's not a thing the other nations of the world can do to stop it. Are the other nations going to try to stop it? Yes. Will they succeed? No. Only for a while. And then God's going to have Zechariah and Haggai kick him into high gear. Or he'll kick him somewhere else. Verse 17 Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. Understand, please, that's not just talking about the return from the Babylonian captivity. That's talking about the return for the day of the Lord. It's talking about the second regathering. The first regathering was the return from Babylon. The second regathering 
is completed when the Lord returns. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 11. Isaiah also prophesied this second regathering. The reason you see the Lord of hosts all over Zechariah is it didn't just prophesy about the return from Babylon. Oh, now think about it. It does not just refer to the return from Babylon. And what was God telling Israel? Get on the stick and get the temple rebuilt. So what is God saying to us today? That the temple's going to be rebuilt, will it? Are we getting really close to the temple being rebuilt? We are. What's one of the things you've heard in the news lately that's a potential fulfillment of this biblical prophecy? Which nation is talking about taking over the Temple Mount from Jordan? Saudi Arabia. Which nation is negotiating with Israel to enter into the Abraham Accords? Saudi Arabia. So will Saudi Arabia take control of the Temple Mount and give Israel the northern half to build the temple? It is really quite possible. Those red heifers, they're ready to be sacrificed very soon or it'll be too late. That high-speed rail, yes, was built from the airport in Tel Aviv to the Temple Mount for the purpose of what? The Gentiles from around the world bringing sacrifices to sacrifice at the rebuilt temple. And when's it supposed to be done? Any time now, right? Now they're working on trying to arrange something so that it can go back and forth automatically on Shabbat. Yeah. Wasn't the Holy Holies where the Dome of the Rock is? I say no. Okay. For this reason. Right. We know that the the Ark of the Covenant sat on a piece of exposed bedrock on the top of the Temple Mount. But there are two. Oh. One's under the Temple Mount. And one's under what's called the Dome of the Spirits on the north end of the Temple Mount. Which does, that dome doesn't mean anything to the Muslims. Not only are there two pieces of exposed bedrock, but according to the ancients, by the uh, place where the Ark sat in the Holy of Holies, there was a specially shaped stone. I've stood on that stone. It's by the Dome of the Tablets. And the ancients say that if you stand on the Mount of Olives and look through the Eastern Gate, you would look directly into the Holy of Holies. Have you stood up there and looked across the Eastern Gate? You're seeing that little cupola, not the Dome of the Rock. So I've been teaching for 30 years that that cupola is where they're going to build the new temple. And on the last tour I was there in Israel with my Jewish mother as my guide, as I call Susan Marcus. We were down under the Temple Mount in the tunnels looking at a model of the Temple Mount. And she's saying, this is where the temple's going to be rebuilt, where the Dome of the Rock is. And I said, no, it's not. It's going to be up here. And she was looking at that going, that's not possible. So why? She said, because God will not share the Temple Mount with the Muslims. 
And I said, does the Bible not say that God will not inhabit that third temple? And she said, I never thought about it that way. And the last time I was in Israel, we were standing, there's a great model of old Jerusalem by the uh, museum. And I was saying to the tour guide, now stand here where the Mount of Olives is and look through the eastern gate and what do you see? And she said, well, that's north of the Dome of the Rock. That's where that little cupola is. And I said, now, when we go up on the Mount of Olives, look and you see, that's an accurate depiction. So, at any rate, Isaiah 11, I, I digress, I'm sorry. Wait, real quick. Real quick, Richard. Can you, can you remind us about the um, red heifer, because you said something about it not qualifying? It seems like they're supposed to be a certain age. The red heifers, they have at least four red heifers that are still fully qualified. And there's a certain age after which they're too old to be sacrificed or slaughtered. And they say that this coming Passover is about the time they're going to expire. Oh, that's even more good news. Yeah, true or not, we'll find out. The red heifers are being moved from Jerusalem to Shiloh. Our tour in October, we're going to Shiloh, so I'm hoping to see the red heifers. We'll see. Okay, but I digress. Back to Isaiah 11, 11. Well, we'll start in verse 10 for context. And in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. So we know when this is going to take place. The day of the Lord starts with the rapture, resurrection, goes through the seven-year tribulation period, then the 993-year millennial kingdom to the new heavens and new earth. And that day there should be a root of Jesse, that's our Messiah Yeshua, who shall stand as a banner to the people. That word banner is a rallying point, like a military banner around which the troop gathers when the trumpet sounds. He's a banner to the people for the Gentiles who seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. That resting place refers to Hebrews 4.9, where the word is sabbatismos, which means only the Sabbath rest of the Messianic kingdom. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. <coughs> the first regathering was after Babylon. It was a partial regathering. The second regathering is everyone. From Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Malam and Shinar, from Hamat and the islands of the sea, all you need to know is that's the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel. The word assemble means to gather together. And gather together the dispersed of Judah. So Israel refers to the northern kingdom that went into captivity in 722 BCE to the Assyrians and have never yet come out. According to Ezekiel 37, Israel and Judah are put together again in the Messianic kingdom when Messiah returns. And it says in verse 13, Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So this regathering takes place in the day of the Lord when Messiah returns to establish his kingdom. Which believers are going to be gathered in according to verse 10 and 11? All believers, whether Jew or Gentile. All. 
but it means true believers, those that keep Shabbat and hold fast to the covenant. That's Isaiah 56, starting in verse 6. Yeah, let's go to Ezekiel 37 and see when Judah and Israel are reconnected, regathered. Ezekiel 37, the vision of the valley of dry bones. If you want to know where we are this day in Bible prophecy, we're in Ezekiel chapter 37. You can put dates in the verses, 1897, 1917, 1967, etc. But when we come to verse 18, this is about the return of Messiah. We'll start in 15 for context. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it. For Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. That's the southern kingdom of Judah. That stick is the Davidic throne. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. So one represents the throne of the southern kingdom, one the throne of the northern kingdom. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick or one tree. That is, at the death of Solomon, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. When Messiah returns, they're put back into one. They'll become one in your hand. When the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God. It's actually, Thus says my Lord, the Lord. Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. So one kingdom, no more divided. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before your eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side, that's the four points of the compass, and bring them into their own land, and I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. Do you know who that king will be? Our Messiah, Yeshua, king of kings and lord of lords. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Messiah tells us about this regathering in Matthew chapter 24. He does not tell us about the rapture in Matthew 24. That's in John 14. Matthew 24 is about the second regathering, the regathering when Messiah returns. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, so the tribulation period comes to an end, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Revelation 19.11. 
and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, the shofar hagadol, the great trumpet. There are three trumpets that are named by the Jewish people. The first trump sounded in Exodus 19 to announce the betrothal of Israel to God. The last trump blows in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and following to signal the rapture and a resurrection. And the great trumpet, the shofar hagadol, sounds on the day of atonement when Messiah returns for the battle of Armageddon, and it's over. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That's another way to refer to the four points of the compass, just like Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 and 11. You want to know what's going to happen? Verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender, it puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. 1948 started the countdown. Psalm 48 refers to it as the last generation. Psalm 90, verse 10, says it's 70 to 80 years in length, the last generation. 48 plus 70 is 2018. And 80 years is 2028. We're right smack in the middle of that 10-year window. And how does Psalm 90 verse 10 end? And then we will fly away. You got a question, Marta? Go ahead and ask it. Where was that? Turn to Psalm 90 verse 10. First, go to Psalm 48 so I can show you where it says the last generation because your Bible needs fixing. Psalm 48, verse 13. Psalm 48 talks about and prophesies the reestablishment of the nation of Israel being militarily strong as it had to be because they were attacked immediately as soon as they decreed themselves a nation. So verse 12 of Psalm 48 says, Walk about Zion, that's Jerusalem. Go all around her counter towers. Those are military towers, so the military might has returned to Israel. Mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. But the Hebrew says, Lador Acherit, which is to the last generation, not generation following. What would it be if it was the generation following? It would be Lador Acher. Lador Acherit is the last generation. And Psalm 90 verse 10 tells us how long that generation is. And Moses wrote Psalm 90. 90 or 90, 90. Psalm 90 verse 10. Psalm 90 verse 4 is the verse that says a day is the Lord is a thousand years. So it's looking specifically at end times prophecy. Psalm 90 is. Verse 10 says the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they're 80 years. So there's that 10 year window. 70 to 80. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Cut off means it won't go a full 80 years, but somewhere between 70 and 80. We will what? 
we will fly away. So sometime between 2018 and 2028, what do you know? We're right there smack in the middle, aren't we? All right, back to Zechariah. I'm sorry, I'm getting so off topic today. Shame on me. I should know better. Well, oh, and we're out of time too. Okay. You're right. So we'll pick up next week, Lord willing. Wait a minute. Do we finish 17? Let's make sure we read 17. Again, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So an end times prophecy. My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion. How does he comfort Zion? He returns to rule and reign. He brings peace. He brings harmony. And will again choose Jerusalem. That will be his throne. So we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 18.